0: watches in the fourth dimension I understand. have a primary and secondary reproductive cycle I'm not afraid of men they don't own
1: the world Come on I'm broad a fool. i from your
2: bones my little chicken
0: Hello and welcome back to Watches in the Fourth Dimension I'm Anthony I'm Don
2: I'm Julie
3: and I'm Riley and Are Sir Edward's men so (laughs) (laughs) ill-fed?
0: It's time for a new season with a new companion, new title sequence, and new logo. That's right, this episode we will be discussing The Time Warrior. But before we get into that, Julie is going to take a very quick look at our mail. Over to you, Julie.
2: Thank you. Luckily, or not so lucky, I don't know, (laughs) because of our recording schedule, we don't have too much mail to go over today. All three pieces of mail have to do with the Green Death. First one is from Kieran James Evans, who says, It's between this and Carnival for my favorite of the season. While the Welsh stereotypes are a little thick, it's Pertwee's impression that is most annoying with it being over the top and not a good way. The actual story and characters are all great. Maybe just the curse of being a six part lets it down a little. Gotta say, I tend to disagree. I thought the fact that Pertwee was so over the top was actually really fun and not annoying. Maybe that's just me.
0: No, Agreed. <laughs> His accent was not good, though.
2: Oh, oh, absolutely not. Our friend Peter Beatnik says, Hippies, maggots, and a show tunes-loving AI. It's just too bad the miners <laughs> die instead of the hippies. Six, <laughs> six and a half out of ten hippie protesters. I gotta say, that that makes me a little sad. Why do the miners or the hippies have to die? Maybe someone else could have. I don't know. Last but not least, the Whovian Gal. This is probably my second favorite Pertwee story, After Inferno. Sorry, Don. Sorry, it's all good. I also find it funny how the production team wanted the political elements to be more subtle. Our definition of subtle politics has clearly changed in the past 50
0: years.
2: (laughs) Yes. Yes, it has. And that is it for the mail. Back to you, Anthony.
0: And just to add some context, it's only six days since we last recorded, so it's a little shorter time than usual. We went like six weeks without recording and then six days. Anyway, thank you, Julie. As a reminder, we love hearing all of your feedback, comments, and questions, and we do try to read out as many of them as possible. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at watchers 4 d or via email at watches4d at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. With that, we move into our behind-the-scenes segment, and there is a little bit more to cover than usual this time round. Work on this serial started basically as soon as Robert Holmes had finished work on his previous one, Carnival of Monsters. His initial submission was for a story that had the working title of The Automata. Producer Barry Letts and script editor Terence Dix rejected this, and Dix proposed that Holmes work on a story with a historical setting, something that Holmes was distinctly unenthusiastic about, as he felt that historical stories were a relic of the show's original educational remit and should be left in the past. Boo! However, (laughs) he did agree to setting the serial in the medieval period on the condition that it would feature no historical figures and could still include a strong science-fictional element. At the end of February 1973, he was formally commissioned to write a storyline that was provisionally entitled The Time Fugitive. One of the centre points of the story would be a new race of aliens called the Sontarans. Hmm, wonder if we'll ever hear from them again. Whom Holmes devised after reading Prussian General Karl von Clausewitz's early 18th century military strategy work On War. He prepared his submission in the form of a military communique between the Sontarans Holmes and Terran Sedix. Wonder where we've heard those names before. When full scripts were requested, the story became known as The Time Survivor before ultimately settling on the name The Time Warrior. While Holmes was busy working on the scripts, Letts and Dix were working on casting the new companion. The character eventually became known as Sarah Jane Smith, who was written to be more independent and modern than Joe Grant. Partially in response to accusations of sexism that were occasionally levelled at the show. The role was first awarded to an actress by the name of April Walker, who had previously appeared in The In Line, Dad's Army, and Crossroads. John Pertwee was absolutely furious with the casting for two reasons. First, they had previously worked together, and he felt that the two of them had very little chemistry. Second, and on a slightly more chauvinistic note, he argued that she did not have the slender, petite body type that he felt worked best alongside his doctor. I see you, John Pertwee. I see you. Walker's contract was promptly cancelled, although she was still paid in full for the entire season. Nice work if you can get it. The final actress to audition from the role was Elizabeth Sladen, who initially believed that she was auditioning for a guest spot. After impressing Letts, she was introduced to Pertwee, who this time was allowed to give his approval because obviously they didn't want to have to pay a second actress for a season that she wasn't going to be in. And she was promptly cast in the role. Prior to Doctor Who, she had started her career on stage in Repertory Theatre in Liverpool before eventually transitioning to the screen, and she had been in episodes of Zed Cars, Doomwatch, and Coronation Street. The Time Warrior was actually the final story to be recorded as part of the show's 10th recording block, although it was held back to open season 11. Let's had hoped to direct the serial himself, but both he and Dix were busy preparing for production on their new show, Moonbase 3 which they both anticipated eventually leaving Doctor Who for, if it were to be successful. Spoiler alert, it only lasted one season, and they did not leave Doctor Who for it. But, with Let's Not being available, veteran director Alan Bromley was given the director's chair. He was known as both a director and a producer, and worked most notably on Z Cars, That Old Chestnut, Emmerdale Farm, Paul Temple, Out of the Unknown, Coronation Street, and Crossroads. I'm beginning to think that April really didn't get the job because she never appeared on Zed Cars. Oh, wait, there's more. There's more. Joining Bromley on the creative team, we have old Dudders returning to provide incidental music. James Aitchison is back with costumes. And don't forget, he will eventually design the costumes for Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. And we also have Keith Cheatham making his only contribution to the show as designer. And he is also notable for work on Dixon of Doc Green, The Two Ronnies, and, you guessed it, Zed Cars.
1: That just supports my theory.
0: (laughs) Now, with Dix and Letts planning on leaving the show, they started working on hiring Dix's replacement. Occasional Doctor Who writer Lewis Marks suggested Robert Holmes for the job. And despite an apparently very tense meeting with BBC head of serials Ronnie Marsh, Holmes got the job and would spend much of the season shadowing Dix. That sounds kind of rude. Additionally, Let's wanted to launch the show into its second decade with some changes. And so over the summer break, between seasons, he asked Bernard Lodge of the BBC's graphics department to create a new title sequence. While the Howl Around technique had been used in all three of the title sequences to date, Let's wanted something different. Lodge used a technique called split screen, in which abstract designs were photographed by a moving camera through an aperture cut in a solid mask creating an amorphous tunnel of light. Lodge also designed a new logo for the show, introducing the legendary diamond logo. Love those Art Deco vibes on that one. Both the new title sequence and the logo were introduced with this serial. The finished serial was broadcast between the 15th of December 1973 and the 5th of January 1974, with the final episode once again getting over 10 million viewers. So with that, it's time for our short summary, which is in the hands of Don this episode. Over to you, my friend. Thank you, sir. In this, the pilot episode to the Sarah Jane
1: Adventures, while investigating the disappearance of several present-day scientists, intrepid reporter Sarah Jane accidentally travels back in time to the not-so-merry old England of the 13th century. Along with her temporary companion, the Archer Hal, she must stop the plans of an evil space-baked potato who has been kidnapping scientists to force them to repair his ship, and also providing the local extremely overconfident Robber Baron with weapons, just because he's bored. Keep an eye out for cameo appearances by John Pertwee as a monk, a robot knight, and the inventor of the
0: stink bomb. (laughs) Nice. So with that, let's talk about not episode one, but part one.
2: I honestly didn't even realize that it changed. I was too distracted by the opening to notice that it said part one instead.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about that gorgeous new title sequence.
2: I'm not sold on it yet. Yeah,
3: and I don't know why, I was never a fan of the Diamond logo.
1: I'm with you on that. It always looks cheesier to me. I I like the intro, I just don't think we need the full body shot of Pertwee as part of it. I think
0: the face was enough. Yeah, yeah. But the slit screen, very cool, I like that effect a lot. It's interesting that we get this for the last season of Pertwee because I feel like the slit screen technique is much more associated with the Tom Baker era. And this is like a kind of trial run of what would be his title sequence. It's not quite there yet. It's not quite that iconic one that we all know and love and is often parodied on things like Family Guy.
2: Do we all know and love? Because some of us don't know and love yet.
0: <laughs> Fair. Fair point, Julie.
2: <laughs> Have to call you out on that every once in a while.
0: That's true. But have you really never seen it on like clip shows and stuff like that?
2: Not really. Okay, fair enough. And maybe I have and I just I don't have that association with Tom Baker. It could be that I'm familiar with that sequence. But since I've never seen any Tom Baker runs, like I just don't associate it that way.
0: Yeah, that's fair enough.
2: But I'm not sold on it. I think the full body shot's weird.
0: It doesn't really last. I mean, they go for something a bit different. I do love the diamond logo, but... When I was growing up, it was the logo of the show that was on all of the VHS releases and Doctor Who magazine and all that kind of thing. So for me, that's very classic and nostalgic.
1: I can completely understand the nostalgic pull of it. It's just never really appealed to me
0: personally, but that's okay. Yeah, it's fair. All right, into the story. And we have six and a half minutes of shooting stars, bad-tempered Saxons slash Vikings and potato aliens.
2: I love it. Mainly because of all of the terrible sayings that happen throughout (laughs) this entire serial. One of them being, are you chicken-hearted knaves? Which he says multiple times through this serial. Makes me very happy.
3: There's also a whole lot of insolence going around. There's a lot of insolent this and insolent (laughs) that.
1: I think that Iron Gron, which I don't think is his real name. I think he made (laughs) that up. Especially with blood axe right next to him. I mean, that's very middle school heavy metal there. I think he is the one bad guy who he's more stupid than bad, but you get my point, who Omega <laughs> would tell him to turn it down a
0: bit. He's just a little too over the top. <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little bit.
3: That is a good point that Anthony raises. We spend a lot of our time in every episode with him. At times I was watching this like Am I watching Doctor Who? I don't really see the Doctor very much. I don't see Sarah Jane very much. I do see this guy a lot, yelling (laughs) at people and calling them insolent. At least he's fun. He's not a
0: boring villain. It's funny because I think Bloodaxe is just as much of an idiot. I mean, when Link's introduced himself, Bloodaxe says, I've heard tales of his Easter magic. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't realize that there was specific magic for Easter, but cool. I don't think
1: Bloodaxe would necessarily be a bad guy without Iron Gron's influence. He's just an idiot.
0: <laughs> so is Iron Gron, to be honest.
1: Yeah, but he, he's he's an idiot with some ambition. And the only reason he's gotten away is because there's nobody around to stop
0: him. And it wouldn't take yeah. much. <laughs> but I timed it and it's genuinely six and a half minutes before we see the doctor and the brigadier. Yeah, yeah
2: but you know what we do get? We get some clarinets and muted trumpet. So it's not all synth, and that made me happy. It's still not my favorite music, but it's not offensive, like I used to say.
0: It's getting that, right?
2: Yeah.
1: Dudley's gonna Dudley. That's just how that goes. (laughs) Okay, I don't have a whole lot of complaints about this serial. Spoiler. But one of them was that by the time we get to the Brigadier and the Doctor, we have already solved the initial mystery as an audience. We know what's happening. Couldn't you have re this a bit so we actually have the scientist missing and then we get some idea of what's going on?
2: It's funny because you look at it that way. I look at it as kind of the whole thing is just then irony throughout the entire serial. So it's just it kind of works for me. I don't need it to be a mystery every time.
1: I mean, it didn't ruin it for me, obviously. Mm -hmm. I just felt that one little cut was like we couldn't wait till the end
0: to know what's going on. But still, it was it was fine. Let's talk about goings on in present time. The Doctor and Lethbridge-Stewart talking about scientists going missing, those working on new alloys, guidance systems, etc. So the Brigadier takes them all away from their families and basically locks them up in a maximum security facility, which is a bit extreme. A little bit.
2: When is the Brigadier not extreme? I mean, he committed genocide.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, by this point in the show, he's bonkers. So it's fine.
3: Yeah, that's true. He has already lost his mind officially in the Three Doctors, so at this point, he's just a danger to himself and others.
0: (laughs) It serves the story for the only reason. It doesn't prevent anyone else from getting kidnapped, but it does put them in a place where the Doctor can then detect them being kidnapped and go chasing after them. With his alarm clock, which I loved. But the Brigadier's plan is stupid. Well, yes. Yes. (laughs) Well, the
3: Brigadier's plan also allows us to entice a character like Sarah Jane to want to go there because it's something that's pulling, something mysterious that's pulling all these scientists to this one place. So as a journalist, you'd be interested as to what's going on over there.
0: On that note, the Brigadier talks about the kind of scientists that he's bringing in and then also a virologist, Lavinia Smith. And she, even if it was Lavinia Smith and not her niece Sarah Jane undercover as a reporter, that wouldn't really fit in with the kind of scientists that they've been talking about.
2: Also, it took... Nine minutes and 34 seconds for us to get a woman on screen. Just wanted to point that out there.
1: Not that anyone's timing these things. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of timing this story. Okay. I need to pitch something here. Occasionally we do the big finish. Are you listening segment? Mm -hmm. This is mine. I need this to be set after the doctor has left unit. And so they bring in Rubish to basically handle the doctor's job (laughs) Along with Miss Hawthorne from the Demons, because there's more supernatural things going on, and it's called Absolute Rubish.
0: (laughs) That would be great. Can't lose. (laughs) He's very likable, isn't he? He is. He reminds
3: me of like a helpful secondary character in a Scooby-Doo episode. (laughs)
2: Yes. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I was sitting here watching some of this, and... There are times throughout the serial where he is more helpful than Sarah Jane. So I'm just sitting here. I'm like, couldn't we have had Rubish as a companion? That would have been interesting and different.
1: That would have been very different.
2: I would have loved it. I loved Rubish. I'm all on board the Rubish train. Let's talk about Sarah Jane. First off, I had no idea that her background was a reporter. After seeing Sarah Jane and some of like the newer Doctor Who and then just knowing of her in things. So I had no idea about that. But I also like that she got really indignant when she was asked to make coffee.
3: (laughs) I honestly think that was done by the doctor to just test her. would she strike back against a request mm-hmm. like that and i think that's intentionally what he was doing i don't think he was just being an ass i think he was just trying to see who she was if she'd have the fight in her to say something
0: and i think it's almost paralleling joe where he immediately makes an assumption that she's the tea girl and here he's prodding her and then he's like okay i'm gonna go make my own coffee cool and he also knew she wasn't who she was claiming to be yeah oh yeah so it's nice to kind of prod her a little bit absolutely Absolutely. But by the time we flip back to the medieval period, we meet another woman when we meet Sir Edward and his wife, Lady Eleanor. And I do want to say Lady Eleanor, played by the wonderful June Brown, rest in peace. She died about a month ago. She was 95 years old and in her time had starred in 2,371 episodes of EastEnders. (laughs) (laughs) Legend. And by the way, she also was in Zed Cars at one point. <laughs> when did she have time? As was Blood as was Iron Gron. David Deku played Iron Gron was actually a series regular in Zed Cars.
1: <gasps> did he
0: tone it down a bit in Zed Cars? Or was this like, this is my chance? <laughs> <I can> do- <laughs> I've never seen an episode of Zed Cars, so I have as much clue as you do. Uh,
2: I just want to see the episode with Brian Blessed, and then I'll be set.
0: Well, he was a series regular as well.
2: Oh, was he? I thought he was yeah. only in... Oh,
0: Oh, that was was the start of Brian Blessed's career. So an episode with David Dacre and Brian Blessed.
2: Oh, over the top
0: brilliance. Which
3: one of them is playing a a Zed car?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Dear, oh, dear. Okay, moving on. Back
0: on topic.
3: Lady Eleanor, let's discuss her because she's really kind of the impetus in Edward's kingdom, really.
0: Yeah, she's the brains behind the throne.
3: Yeah, Edward seems a bit kind of um, limp and... He's a
0: wet blanket. Yeah.
2: Yes. I love her, though, because she does it so subtly, where it's that I have everything run like clockwork, but I don't go out and throw it in people's faces, and I appreciated that aspect of it.
1: Subtle power.
3: She wasn't doing an Ingrid Pitt from the Time Monster, is what you're saying.
2: That.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like she knows that in the late 11th century, a woman openly being in a position of power like that most likely would not have been accepted. So she is influencing from her position, but not upstaging Sir Edward. I love it.
2: Let's get to our ending towards our cliffhanger.
0: Yeah, so we meet Hal the Archer, who is fantastic. It's Robin Hood. And Boba Fett. Yeah, and he is Boba Fett. <laughs> 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 the original Boba fat yes or robin
1: fett whatever you want to do
3: robin fett <laughs> before we get to bringing the doctor and sarah jane to that location i need to discuss the direction and the camera work of the doctor slipping into the tardis while talking to the breed here, and then sarah jane stumbling into the tardis so to speak that was direction-wise, not very good <laughs> Because there's a scene going on in the front, and I think they realized they couldn't shoot it right. They had to chop it, and it made it look really awkward. Where if they shot it from a wide angle or just from further back, you would see that when the doctor is talking to the brigadier, she somehow can't see them. Doesn't know they're there. They don't know that she's there. And then she kind of like peers into the TARDIS looking for him. And then she goes in. All this is happening while they're literally six feet from her, just further upstage. It's just not well designed. And I I realized the problem was that the director had a set where he couldn't figure out how to shoot that because it was so cramped.
2: Maybe it was shot a little oddly, but at the same time, I don't think she didn't see the doctor and the brigadier. I think she absolutely saw them. As for them two, obviously they didn't see her because she was looking for rubbish.
3: Oh, that's right. Yeah. I guess they should have seen her walking, but anyway, just a small thing that bothered me. I just didn't like the editing. I didn't like how that was shot. just felt like it would have been done a lot better.
2: So we've got Sarah Jane as a stowaway. We get to the medieval period with Sarah Jane and the doctor, and she accidentally messes up Al's shot. (sighs) So sad.
1: I mean, it would have been a much shorter serial if she had.
0: (laughs) It would have. (laughs) But I kind of love it. I love that she stumbles in and ruins everything and then just assumes that she is in some kind of pageant, historical reenactment or what we would have in the U.S. as the the Renaissance Festival. I think it's so funny that she just has no clue that she has traveled in time. Which is kind of nice because a lot of times we get the setup
1: of, oh, this is the TARDIS and we're in time and space, blah, blah, blah. And then they go on their first adventure. Here it's different. And I like that. She's like, what is going on? So it's nice.
2: And we get our cliffhanger. That's
0: where I was going to go. So we get the doctor kind of hiding behind some barrels in the grounds of the castle. Lynx takes off his helmet and we see the baked potato in all its glory.
3: And did he have to be panting? I mean, what was that with his tongue? I actually think I know
1: because they keep calling him Frog Face. Toad Face. Toad Face, yes. in in the script that it was... Sort of a combination of a human and a toad, and that's why he's doing the tongue thing.
0: Okay. I've never been able to see it because to me, they've always just looked like sentient baked potatoes. Right. And then also on top of that, Kevin Lindsay, the actor, had a heart condition and was incredibly hot wearing the latex Sontarin mask underneath the helmet. So he was actually panting a little from the heat Ah. as well. On top of that, they made him wear the makeup.
1: Even when he was wearing the helmet? Uh, certainly for shots like this, yes. Wow. If they
0: did it all the time, that's just cruel. That is totally yeah. unnecessary. But I think the tongue thing he does is wonderfully creepy. It is.
2: It also is hard for me because I have a friend named Kevin Lindsay, and it just boggles my mind <laughs> every time. Like, I'm just like, it's not it's not the same person. It's definitely different not. Different Kevin Lindsay. Different one.
0: All right, that takes us into part two.
2: We got a little bit of a long recap. Not as bad as some of the others. <laughs> but it was a bit long. But what I like is that Sarah Jane has a backbone.
0: Oh, she's got some fire.
2: Kicking and screaming and yelling. Oh, it was so good.
0: Yeah, she is great from the very start. And she is still believing the whole thing is an act and is like, guys, knock it off. And you see her mind starting to tick and she's like, well, it's not a pageant. It's not a film set. Must be a tourist attraction. Oh, Sarah, Sarah, you got so close. So a little bit further on you'll wind up in Westworld it's fine <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh boy but we do get more mind control and that made me very sad at least it's used sparingly and it's only for the length of which he has that whatever that thing is and whenever it's on so i'm like it could be a lot worse
0: it could <laughs> i think it's so funny additionally that he doesn't know what a woman is <laughs> he's a different species, other
2: species. <laughs>
0: when they try and kind of explain he goes ah i understand you have a primary and secondary reproductive system it is inefficient you should change it (laughs) (laughs) that was just brilliant
3: that is exactly what was being pulled on new who when they were uh was it strax i believe the character yeah yeah Yeah. i mean they basically took that kind of concept of humor of the Centaurs and carried it over and it was brilliant with him i guess this is the origins
0: I feel like it's a lot more subtle with links. There are funny moments, but it's not outright being played for laughs. Right. It's done, I don't know, almost like they, they know there's some humor there, but it's not done just to make us laugh.
2: Well, I think one of the things, too, is that since this is the origin of it, whenever things are referenced in the future, it's always more over the top than what it originally came from. Also true. Again, I'm going to go into some of the sayings of our lovely medieval <laughs> folks because it's fun. But he does say, tell me how the Iron Man works.
0: And the answer, not very well.
2: <laughs> Tony Stark would be appalled. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but the introduction of the robot does give Sarah the opportunity to wander off and escape.
2: It's so funny because Iron Gron is just like, eh, she won't get far. Like, what?
0: He's an idiot. He's not a very good leader. Let's just put it that way. No, I feel like Eingron and Bloodaxe are your kind of Holmesian double act. But in this case, they're both just idiots.
2: (laughs) What I also find interesting with that robot, I'm just sitting there watching that robot. I'm like, that is a very inefficient robot. Don't care who you are. But I'm pretty sure I could sword fight against that robot and I'd probably win.
1: As soon as I saw the remote control... I just went. Well, that's a stupid idea. That's not going (laughs) to (laughs) work.
3: And you were right. It's not very good at fighting, but set it up to like prep some vegetables. It could probably do (laughs) wonders with that.
0: Yeah, like the vegetable cutting droids in the Mandalorian or the Book of Boba (laughs) Fett, whichever one it was.
2: What I also find interesting is okay, so we send the robot out against Hal because instead of just beheading him, we're going to have this robot do it. Would one of the arrows that they made back then really be able to pierce the robot at all?
3: I think so. You hear that Mythbuster, guys? Get on it.
2: (laughs) Because when they were mentioning at first, they were like, he would be able to get into the chinks of the armor, which is typically what would be done is like, oh, around the elbows, shoulders, neck, that's where you would actually hit somebody with a bow and arrow. And then it's just sticking straight out of the chest.
0: And on top of that, you would think that Lynx would design a robot where the machinery wasn't in those weak points as well.
3: Let's be fair. Lynx was just phoning it in. He thought they were all rubes. He was like, well, I need to buy some time. I'll just make like some shoddy work. They'll just be all amazed by it. And I can get the hell out of here.
1: I don't know. I think it kind of hurt his feelings that they weren't super impressed by his robot. And they're like, I'll make you another one. It'll obey voice commands.
0: (laughs) You don't have to try and impress them, dude. And in the end, he just gives up. He's like, screw oh. you guys.
2: <laughs> you know what I'm actually impressed by? The fact that when Iron Gron finally sees Link's face, he just doesn't care. He's just like, oh, you're kind of ugly. Well, anyway, deal with this robot thing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, Brilliant. So we have the Doctor and Sarah Jane basically doing different things, right? So the Doctor goes off into Link's dungeon, for want of a better term, and finds Rubish. And meanwhile, you have Sarah Jane and Hal making it back to Sir Edward's castle. And she still believes the Doctor is helping Eingron even though she has just encountered Lynx. I mean, they all could be in cahoots, you know?
1: Yeah. She hasn't seen any evidence that the Doctor is a good person.
3: He's just the asshole that asked her to make coffee.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I actually really like the fact that for once we get a companion that really doesn't trust him at this point, and she's still doing her own thing. It's been a while since we've had that.
3: And Don raises a very good point, and it kind of ties into his summary. It does feel at times, especially with that plot development, that this is the Sarah Jane show, not the doctor show.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, at no point is she kidnapped and waiting to be rescued. She just does it herself. Yeah, she goes out, she meets up with Hal, they go back, meet up with Lady Eldor, they make plans. And arguably she saves the Doctor.
0: Yeah. Actually,
1: I wouldn't say arguably, she does save
0: the Doctor. If we think about modern Doctor Who, we're kind of used to the show periodically providing new jumping on points. And it's been a while since we've had that in Classic Who. Arguably, you could say maybe Terror of the Autons, perhaps even as far back as Spearhead from space. Do you think that this is consciously an attempt to give a new jumping on point by giving Sarah Jane as more of an identifiable character who doesn't necessarily know the Doctor as well as other characters do?
2: I don't think it's conscious. Yeah. But I think it works. Okay.
1: Because if it was more conscious, I think you would get more of an introduction to, say, Unit and the Brigadier. Yeah. And a bit more talking about who the Doctor is.
3: Yeah, there's an interesting thing about the show is that at times, the primary driver of a, arguably sometimes even to a, like to a whole season, is not the Doctor, it's another character. And sometimes the Doctor's the person who's driving the show. But it really does feel like with this, it's more of, welcome to Doctor Who, you need to connect or focus and see yourself through the eyes of Sarah Jane not through the Doctor. The Doctor is something separate from you. While I feel like in previous times, especially with Spearhead, it was all about the Doctor. Granted, because a a new Doctor was being introduced, but it just seemed like there was so much more focus on him. While this seems to be telling the audience, you need to look at things through her eyes instead of his.
0: That's fair. The other thing is when the Doctor has his info dump session with Lynx and ultimately tries to bargain with him, he just casually drops the name of his own planet for the first time with absolutely no ceremony. And that's Gallifrey.
2: Woo! <laughs> Yay! More lore! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And we also get a fair amount of world building there because we hear about this war that's been going on between the Santarans and the Rutans for centuries. It's just like Robert Holmes is just doing that all in a huge info dump. I like it, though.
2: I like that they didn't go too far into Gallifrey. We just had Lynx acknowledging he's like, yeah, I've heard of them. I don't care. And I'm like, cool, great. <laughs> They're not like great. the end all be all of the universe like they have been in New Who.
0: Getting towards the end, after the confrontation with Lynx, Lynx puts him in this chair thing that zaps his brain a couple of times. Do we get a gurn there? We do get a gurn. We do.
2: Ding, 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 ding.
0: So that's plus one to the gurn count starting out the season strong.
2: (laughs) And Rubbish saves the day.
0: But the doctor says, excuse me, professor, I've got to find a young girl. Oh, Pertwee. (laughs) (laughs) And, oh my God, Eingrod and Bloodaxe. Just standing there when the Doctor encounters them. Yes. What an idiot. Is this the handshake moment? This is the handshake moment. Yeah, that was funny. And then we wrap up the episode with this glorious runaround shot from above in the courtyard where Terry Walsh is clearly having the time of his life. <laughs> Brought to you by the Benny Hill Show. Yeah. <laughs> and he hits Angron and he's ready to swing his axe on the Doctor and that's our cliffhanger and brings us into part three. Where we get to see it all over again, all two and a half minutes of it. Or, yes. Or so. <laughs> Until, of course, he is rescued by Sarah Jane and Hal.
2: He thinks he's saved. And then she's like, no, you're not. It's not a rescue, <laughs> it's a
0: capture. Aha.
2: So I love that aspect of it.
0: We also get one of my favorite lines in this. When Iron is describing the doctor to Lynx, he describes him as a long shanked rascal with a mighty nose. <laughs> <laughs> The medieval dialogue is just something else.
2: It's wonderful. We also have Rubish, who continues to be awesome, and he makes himself a lens so he can actually see shit. (laughs) Yes. I love it. He's resourceful, and he saves the doctor several times. He's doing a lot of companion-y type things.
3: And he never panics. He never seems overwhelmed by the situation.
0: Oh, no, he's very nonplussed by everything. (laughs) Don, I think you're onto something here with absolute rubbish. See?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Guaranteed hit. <laughs> it's also at this point that we're introduced to the fact that there are serving wenches.
0: Yes, because of course there are.
2: And they come back in a later episode as well, and that's surprising.
0: Back at Edward's castle, I love the option that Edward gives the doctor. I'll spare your life if you work for me instead of Iron Gron, otherwise I'm going to kill you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty easy choice. Some good negotiation skills right there. Yeah, <laughs> I would choose to help Edward in that scenario.
2: We called him a wet blanket, and yet these were the choice that he gave one of his prisoners, so.
0: That is very true. Well, I guess at this point he's in fight or flight mode. He knows Iron Gron has some stuff going on that's beyond his power, so he's either got to get the Doctor to work for him, or he's going down. But I really love the Doctor's strategy here with his smoke bombs and his, effectively, mannequins. I think it's brilliant.
3: Yeah. It felt like an episode of the A-Team a little bit. <laughs> that or, or Army of Darkness.
2: Surprisingly, it reminded me of a sequence in the movie, The Swiss Family Robinson, when the pirates are scaling the hill yeah. and they're throwing bombs and everything else. That's what it reminded me of.
0: I think that's absolutely what it is, Julie. You took the words out of my mouth there. I like the fact
1: that you could tell it was there because I couldn't afford a real assault. Yeah. So they're
0: like, let's just fake it. It'll be fine. And it and it worked. The siege itself, when Eingrond's men put up the scaling ladders, candidly, it's probably one of the more ambitious things the show has done recently, and there is no CSO in sight.
1: Nope, but you do get a little bit of Python there at the end. Yes, you do.
2: <laughs> Run away. We also get chicken hearted knaves again. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I love. The fact that he's the one who led the retreat, he then calls his men out of being chicken shit, and then Lynx calls him out and being like, well, I thought you were the one who led the retreat. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it was so wonderful. I love all that.
3: I feel like we should not let it pass that at this point, Sarah Jane has had a costume change.
2: Oh, yes. The mini costume changes of Sarah Jane.
3: She has her own kind of like Robin Hoodish kind of green thing going on in this scene. Later on, she changes into something else, but... As I love how they do that as a sign to the audience that, see, like, with Edward and that crew, she's already allied with them so much that she's already got clothes from them. She's already, like, working in with them.
2: I find it interesting that she was able to convince them to not give her a dress at that point.
0: Yeah. Well, a dress wouldn't have been particularly convenient for where they were.
2: But they wouldn't have cared about convenience. They would have been like, you're a woman, you need to wear a dress.
0: I don't know. Some liberties were taken here, I think. What I do like about it, though, is it kind of just repeatedly shows that Edward and Co. have money and Iron Gron don't. So <laughs> Sarah Jane is getting costume changes. You look at Edward's castle and it's ornate. They've got decorations. Everyone is dressed nicely. And then Iron Gron's castle is extremely threadbare. You look at the serving wenches and they're all in extremely dirty clothes. They do a good job at contrasting the two, which I really, really like.
2: So we go back. And he's like, okay, we did the stink bombs. Now we're going to try another thing. We're going to try the sleeping drought. So doctor just doing whatever he can not to kill anybody. And when they go back and his thing is about charity of Iron Gron.
0: As monks? Oh, yeah.
2: The disguise is fine. I love the disguise. They should have kept the disguises on for longer than they did. But the charity thing of Iron Gron made zero sense.
3: Well, I think it was part of like a joke. I think he knew that his men would be so, I guess, sadistic and knew that Iron Ground would probably do something horrible to them. They just kind of viewed it as a prank, like, oh, yes, come on in. Yeah, you see what he's going to do to these monks for asking for money.
0: And the doctor absolutely knows that. That was my read. Yeah, I think he's 100% knowing that that's not the case, and it's just a way to get in, and he knows that they'll have a good laugh about it.
2: Does that constitute as her second wardrobe change, is the friar outfit?
0: Yeah, sure. Let's go for it. Yeah. Okay. I guess technically it's the third because she has that blue and white garb underneath it. So she's obviously put that on first and then put oh, the Friar outfits oh on top gosh. of it. Oh my
2: gosh. Semantics, Anthony. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sorry. It's been that kind of week. The other thing that's going on here is you can tell as the story's progressing, the relationship between Lynx and Iron is just getting more and more frosty. They don't like each other, but they kind of need each other. And, you know, this is not going to end well between them.
1: I was never really entirely sure exactly how much Lynx needed Iron Gron. Once he had his stuff in there, he could have killed them all quite easily. So why didn't he? I don't know. I don't think he also
0: considered him to be enough of a threat to bother at that point. (laughs) And there were definitely times where he basically made comments of you amuse me.
2: Yeah, I think it was an amusement thing. He's like, they can't kill me. I'm just going to sit here and laugh at them. And then, ha ha, when I leave, they're going to all die.
1: Especially when you have Iron Gron constantly threatening Lynx and saying how he's going to kill him. And like every time you've moved towards him with a weapon,
0: it's been destroyed (laughs) easily. What do you think you're going to do? And also, I think since Lynx loves war so much, there's an element of, oh, I might get to see some battles if I keep them alive because he's fighting this other guy, Edward. It really is just something to do while he waits for his ship to be repaired and recharge.
2: The one thing that they didn't show me and I was really sad about was earlier in the episode, they had made reference to having to ride over to Edward's castle and they were like, "eh, hey, let's give Lynx a horse. And I really wanted to see a Santaran on a horse. <laughs>
0: Really did. Yeah, it's going to be a while before we see that. I know. But when we do, it's glorious. We're once again left here with, well, firstly, Lynx has absolutely no understanding of how humans work. He gives his brainwashed scientists no rest, little food, and still expects them to somehow be able to function and berates them for not. So when the doctor tries to bargain with Lynx again, Lynx just zaps him with his wand. No class whatsoever. And that leads us into our cliffhanger and part four, where we have Sarah Jane's first hero moment, stopping Lynx from further hurting the doctor. Rubish comes in.
2: Rubish!
0: Getting his own hero moment.
2: Again, I love Sarah Jane. She never got captured and she does a lot of things. But I still say that Rubish does more things that are more companion level things than Sarah Jane does.
0: Yeah, I mean, the Doctor is talking to Lynx and saying, you know, that's the problem with you, Sontarans. You have this weak spot on the back of your neck. Rubish is like, oh, I see what you're throwing down. Smack. <laughs> <laughs> Smart dude.
3: Going back to what Julie said, we haven't had that moment yet. Right now, from our perspective, we're watching this and we know she's the companion. And I'm not saying that back then they were hinting like, who could it be? But in the narrative, and the story, she hasn't agreed to travel with the doctor. This is just a one-off thing right now for her. So we haven't had that scene that happens so often in New Who, that kind of pact that's made between a companion and the doctor, or the doctor asks them, will you travel with me? Right now, like I said, she's just getting her story as a journalist, going on this crazy adventure, hope to survive it, get back home. That's it so far. That's all we know where her motivation is. Sometimes it happens later. I remember a scene with Joe... Where she didn't want to leave the TARDIS, and he had to basically kind of coax her out, or not coax her, that sounds like he was lying, he wasn't, but he infers a duty of care.
0: Yes, back in colony in space.
3: And that is what I'm talking about. Something like an agreement between the two. And and we don't have that, but there's usually some sort of mechanism that make her want to stay around, and we just haven't had it yet.
0: The other thing I really, really like at the beginning of this episode is some of the dialogue. We have Bloodaxe being an absolute idiot still. Yes. Eingron sends him to fetch Lynx and the doctor puts on Lynx's helmet, crouches down and says, I'm busy. And Bloodaxe <laughs> says, well, come soon or we'll come and fetch you. You've just been sent to fetch him, dude.
2: What are you doing? And then someone says, egalitarian twaddle. That just made me happy. Like, doesn't matter in what context it was said, just that's a wonderful little phrase right there.
1: Apparently it's Time Lord Egalitarian Twaddle. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> They've never seemed terribly egalitarian to me, but what do I know? And then you also have Rubish saying, Who is Iron Gron anyway? Nice chap. And the doctor goes, Well, I wouldn't recommend him for the Royal Society. <laughs> the dialogue here, even if it is over the top with Blood Axe and Iron Gron at times. I think is absolutely sparkling. It comes across well, even if it's ridiculous.
2: Then we get the doctor, because Pertwee needs to have his fight scene.
0: (laughs) And another disguise.
2: (laughs) And another disguise. It's not as fun as the maid, but I just sit there and I'm like, first off, can't you see the visor? There's a face there as opposed to last time. It just, (laughs) although Iron Ground is really dumb.
0: (laughs) Really dumb.
1: But Bloodaxe said he had a towering intellect.
0: (laughs) (laughs) To someone with an IQ of two, someone with an IQ of four does have a towering intellect.
1: The, The best part about that was after he said it, Iron Grond gave him a
0: look as if, like, is he insulting me? <laughs> or does he believe that? Like, it, it totally confused him. When they decide to fight the doctor as well, right? So Iron Grond takes him on, then he brings Bloodaxe into the fight and then wants to put a couple of crossbow bolts in him as well. Guys, you're trying to destroy your robot here, but is isn't really a robot, but they don't know that because they're idiots. Yeah.
2: <laughs> it doesn't work because eventually the doctor's like, well, I don't want to get hit with a bow and arrow or crossbow.
0: This isn't very sporting, is it? Yeah. doctor come on and he's really lucky that iron doesn't decide to just behead him and wants to try out the guns
2: but before we quite get there we have sarah jane doing her thing in which i liked what she was doing but i was real sad that she didn't quite accomplish a rebellion because that's what it seemed like at first she's talking with this serving wench she gets conned into working in the kitchens and she's down there doing that. And she's talking to the serving wench and she's talking about like, hey, like, wouldn't it be nice if you're not like stuck down here? You don't have to follow Iron Gron anymore. And then the serving wench is just like, eh, just do your work and leaves. I'm like, dang it. I wanted to see the serving wenches like rise up against Iron Gron and his goons. It would <laughs> be great.
1: You want him killed by the serving wenches and not by Lynx? Yes. That would be great, actually.
2: But
0: clearly that was a nice to have, but there was always the plan to put the potion in the food.
2: Yeah, that just seems so boring, though. What's better, like potion or rebellion?
0: That sounds like Vicky talk. Feminist uprising. Let's go. (laughs) I love that whole sequence. I think Sarah Jane, story one, she is proving her worth. No matter how much we seem to prefer Rubish at this point, (laughs) she is doing
2: stuff. Oh, she is. Yes, yes. No, she absolutely is doing stuff. It just so happens I have a soft spot for Rubish, so.
0: And when they're shooting at the doctor, she's the one who runs in and does the chandelier swing and comes to the rescue because she's fantastic. Yep. I just love that whole sequence.
2: We have that sequence because, again, we need some more action man heroics things that perk we.
0: It's the Arrow Flynn
1: moment. Yes. yes. The buckling of the swash.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we then get where, OK, we need to save the scientists before we deal with the rest of everything that's going on. So the doctor's teaching Rubish how to do it, which is apparently through Polka. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because why not?
3: In that scene, I couldn't help but think. So he's flashing a light and it seemed to be a sequence. And I thought about how Pertwee was in the Navy, right? Yep. And I can't read Morse code or whatever, like the light signals that ships make when communicating with each other. But I couldn't help but wonder, was he actually sending something that was not gibberish. Was there actually a message encoded there, I wonder? Listeners, look it
0: up. <laughs> yeah, please tell us if you know.
3: <laughs> so he basically has taught Rubish how to deprogram or clear the minds of the other scientists, and now they have to, for a little bit longer, pretend that they're still under this spell.
0: Additionally, I want to talk about Lynx when he goes off to tell Iron Gron that he's leaving, because Iron Gron is like, oh, you're so funny, and Lynx is like, no, you need to go and get a new castle if you want to live. <laughs> And he's like, by the sword, Lynx, you're hilarious. You will be my jester. And then they all fall asleep.
1: Breakups are hard to do. (laughs) Once again, Iron Gron somehow
0: thought that he had some power over it. (laughs) Yeah, not done well, Iron Gron. Not done well.
2: Then we have the Doctor versus Lynx. That all happens with that weird spinny shield thing that works for like half a second. Mm -hmm. Then some Makito action, because... (laughs) Akito <laughs> solves everything.
0: I think Pertwee's had more fight scenes this serial than he has in a while.
2: Yeah, that's probably fair.
0: Probably in his new contract. Quite probably. Because I think he was on a season-by-season season contract, so yeah. <laughs> and while this is going on, Hal's going around disarming everyone, and Iron Grunt wakes up.
2: I feel like he does a really poor job of disarming them because he literally just lays those swords onto the floor.
0: Yeah. He should gather them up and take
1: them away. Iron Grun had just been drugged. And Hal hadn't. I think he
0: could have done a slightly better job at hand-to-hand combat. Also, I love how Iron Gron's immediate assumption is it's Lynx who has sent them all to sleep. (laughs) Yeah. And he goes off in a rage and Lynx finally is like, you know what? I'm just going to kill you. Could have done this ages ago, but I'm fed up of your bullshit. Dead. (laughs) (sighs) Iron Gron, not the way I would have wanted him to go. He died as he lived in a stupid, barbaric... Rage.
2: <laughs> so it's super convenient that the sleeping drought did not last very long for anyone.
0: They're able to get everyone out before it, the castle explodes. But I want to talk about the death of Lynx, because in the original script, it was going to be the doctor who shot the arrow into the probic vent at the back of Lynx's neck. And they changed it up so it would be how. They did the right thing.
2: They did the right thing.
0: I 100% agree.
2: Now, I find it bizarre that... Hal just either, one, miraculously knew where to aim, or two, oops, I didn't know where to aim and it just happened. Both are rather convenient.
1: You would have thought you would have just hit him in the back of his big bulbous head, but no. Nope. Maybe Hal isn't
0: that good of an archer and was actually <laughs> aiming for the back of his head. <laughs> Maybe he would have missed at the beginning, even if Sarah Jane hadn't distracted him. It just went wildly.
2: <laughs> also, what was great is because, again, since I watch all of these with subtitles... I'll blame the Cybermen for that one. (laughs) Uh, I got this wonderful thing that said, buzzing intensifies (laughs) before the spaceship blows up.
0: (laughs) I think that's a meme waiting to happen.
2: Oh, it was Uh, wonderful.
3: You know, we had not discussed the exit amongst the two guards out in front of the gate where the doctor Uh, walks Yeah, it's a very Three Stooges bit. Where he does the, "I look at my open palms kind of thing. Honestly thought he was going to do like the fluttering hand and then poke him in the eye or something. That's about (laughs) the same level.
0: I think it's such a sign of Iron Grom being such an idiot that the only people who are following him are also idiots. Because (laughs) seriously, Stranger is leaving the castle and is like, hey guys, come look at this. Hi! Right. (laughs) They just don't swing at him. Idiots.
2: I know we don't need like a full fledged ending, but I did not like how this episode ended so abruptly.
0: Yeah. It is very quick. Not a lot happens after the castle blows up. It's like a very quick goodbye said to Hal with the doctor saying, I'm not a magician at all. Wink. TARDIS takes off and we're done.
2: The thing I worry about is we've just introduced a new companion, but she's not actually said that she's going to stick around with the doctor. Usually there's some sort of ending that says if she's thinking about it or anything along those lines. But at this point, it's just like, and we're done. Yeah. It just feels off.
1: Maybe we'll get that at the beginning of the next serial.
2: Maybe. We don't get that a lot in Old Who. Yeah. It just it doesn't feel like that would be what they would do. I don't know. We'll see.
0: With that, we're at the end of the serial. Let's go ahead and rate this one. And this time, we are starting with Riley.
3: This is short and sweet. You get your new companion in Sarah Jane. The Doctor is still chill. You get the introduction of the Suntarans. Rubish is a charming supporting character. We went back in time for what feels like the first time. And a long time (laughs) the concept is good i didn't get it enough to emphasize how i thought the direction was poor i know i mentioned the blocking and the scene at the lockup of the scientist in episode one but also the courtyard run around benny hill thing with just the lazy wide like almost like a crane shot uh just was not my cup of tea but that's my only strong criticism this doesn't have a lot of oomph what you would expect from a season opener or the introduction of a new companion, but it is decent. It's a nice short, like I said, short and sweet. So I will give it seven rejected American Gladiator names out of (laughs) ten.
0: All right, I'm next, and I have something to disclose on this. This is one of the first Doctor Who stories I ever saw. Oh, okay.
2: This one has a little
0: bit of a special place in my heart. It was The Mind Robber, this, and The Ark in Space, which we'll get to next season. And even rewatching this as an adult, probably first saw this one around 30 years ago, I still find it enormously enjoyable. Robert Holmes does such wonderful things with characters and brings in just fantastic supporting characters. You look at Professor Rubish, and we've all praised him. You look at the ridiculousness of Iron Gron and Blood Axe, and there's no subtlety there at all. But then you can contrast that with Edward and Eleanor, and there's a lot of subtlety in that power dynamic. I love what he did with the Sontarans and building up a little bit of lore there that will come back later on in the show. And overall, I just find this one really, really fun. So it's probably an element of nostalgia that is going to influence my score, but I don't care. <laughs> and as a result, I'm going to give this one nine foil-wrapped baked potatoes out of ten. <laughs> done over to you i really enjoyed this story
1: it wasn't setting out to do anything hugely incredible and ambitious and failing and falling on its face there are a few directorial issues but the characters are there and they're good and it's just a lot of fun i like that it sort of leaned towards getting to know a new companion and it makes me look forward to seeing more of her stories and what she does So to quote Iron Gron, I'm giving this eight narrow-hipped vixens out of 10.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And before we move on to Julie, I do just want to say I do think it does a good job at introducing Sarah Jane Smith. We learn a bit about her background. She comes in, she asks questions, she does stuff. Excellent introduction, in my opinion. Anyway, Julie, over to you.
2: I think a lot of you guys have hit on a lot of points. The direction had a few issues here and there, but we have a really, really strong story. You've got some really entertaining actors, people that we will remember. Like, how can you not remember Iron Grond after this? And there's just short and sweet to the point and nothing crazy and nothing to write home about. So I am going to give it seven and a half. Chicken hearted knaves.
0: (laughs) And that gives us an average for the story of 7.88, which I think is reasonable for a season opener. That's a good, strong season opener. But with that, that brings us to the end of our episode. And we will be back next time when we head to contemporary Earth with Malcolm Hulk's annual lizard extravaganza (laughs) in Invasion of the Dinosaurs. But in the meantime, as always, thank you so very much for listening. We appreciate you taking the time to listen to our thoughts on a very enjoyable story. And until next time, have a good one. You have been listening to Watches in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Filipek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Absolute Rubish, was recorded on Tuesday, the 10th of May, 2022. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at watchers 4 d and you can also email us at watches4d at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving a a review or rating on your favourite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, Donald Pelmere is still alive at the time of recording. Big Finish could still make absolute rubbish.